0: if you can develop a capacity for taking pleasure in the discovery of being wrong like if you can get to a point where you're like oh i just found out something wrong wow that's great you know like like I, my my uh, my viewpoint is improved by this discovery you know to, to recognize that i am wrong is to have learned something once you get that mindset and it starts to kind of sink in um it it, it helps you to become really humble about how you approach the world because you don't get too dogmatic about anything you believe and you could be wrong about anything and to me that just kind of gives you the the epistemic kind of curiosity to always be learning to always be discovering something new and never thinking that you've got it all and that you've cornered the market or you know everything
1: All right, Troy, uh, welcome to the Where Will You Go podcast. So, uh, Troy Lovett is my guest today, and he, I, I got this excerpt from an article that I found about you. Okay, so, right on. So, so <laughs> Troy Lovett was a lead designer at Warner Brothers Development Studios' Avalanche Software, and he worked on the controversial uh, Harry Potter game, Hogwarts Legacy, and then he also had a reactionary YouTube channel. Um, and this article claimed you were attacking feminism and social justice for over a year. So that is my <laughs> guest today. And I don't know. I So I, your backstory is super interesting. I wanted to see what it was like um, hearing about new atheism. You kind of were hanging out with that crowd, right? When it was forming and stuff. So that. I thought would be really interesting to talk about and then um i also have always wanted to have on like people that have left a long time ago and just see how life is you know
0: yeah yeah
1: more than just like a couple years out you know i don't know if there's anything else you want to add or yeah
0: well i don't know i i guess your podcast is called where will you go and so, you know, uh, I have gone places since I left the church, I guess a little bit, it's, that it was a yeah. long time ago since I, I really had my faith crisis. In fact, I would put that about 1994. So, you know, about 30 years ago now. So wow. quite, yeah, quite a while ago. That's crazy. I, yeah. Um, so uh, I guess just to kind of dovetail that in, uh, to your, you know, where will you go? So, without getting into the reasons why I left the church, which were a lot um, about like everybody else, uh, CES letter stuff, although there was no CES letter in 1994,
1: right? Uh, yeah, you um, had to do your homework.
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, I, uh, I ended up leaving the church after spending lots of time in the special collections section at the library there at the University of Utah. That's how I got my <laughs> education in early Mormonism was looking up the documents in the special collection section. Um, a lot of it was driven, uh, by some conversations I was having with friends and, uh, Mormonism shadow or reality. I, I started fact checking them, you know, the, the book that the tanners put out Mormonism shadow or reality in 1994, thinking that I would find all the stuff that they've got wrong, mm-hmm. really, they, they got it all right. And so, uh, I felt my, my faith eroding then, but from there, uh, and I think the point of your podcast is like, well, what do you do after you leave Mormonism? Where do you go and, and, uh, what happens, um. So back in in 1994, after I was losing my faith, uh, I I guess there was kind of this this confluence of I was talking to my other um, former missionary friend who had also served in Pusan, Korea. I served my mission in Korea from 88 to 90. And so we were talking about parapsychology stuff, paranormal stuff, because he had another friend who was into Mm. like Ouija boards and stuff. And uh, that's how I ended up buying or getting the book Flim Flam which is James Randi's book about uh, the paranormal and him investigating, you know, psychics and that sort of stuff and table tipping and all this kind of cool things that the that, um, that, uh, psychics do. And so I, I had been reading that immediately prior to my involvement or my uh, investigation into the church. And so then when I was on my way out of the church, when I started to, to lose it, a lot of that skepticism that had been ingrained from um, doing the, you know, the flim flam book and, uh, and reading stuff, merged up with my belief in science and Carl Sagan, and then uh, my new kind of community that I started to, to work towards. Uh, that time didn't really exist, but it was um, it, it was the emerging kind of skeptics community that was getting started back then. Uh, I started, uh, because of the James Randi Association, I started taking um, Skeptical Inquirer, which is a magazine that they published. Uh, James Randi and Carl Sagan had put together this committee to investigate claims of the paranormal, uh, and so their, their journal was called skeptical Inquirer. And then Michael Shermer at about the same time started, um, his book or his magazine skeptic mm-hmm. and skeptic was, you know, the magazine that was uh, investigating all the, the paranormal things from another angle. So there was kind of this convergence of skepticism, which brings me, I guess, uh, to 2003, when I really started to, um, become more engaged with the, uh, skeptics movement that was just starting up then. And the first. Uh, meeting I attended was the 2004 amazing meeting in Las Vegas with James Randy. And that's, uh, and so, you know, where will you go? I ended up going into kind of this very early community of skeptics and new atheists. There was no new atheism back then. It was mostly about um, investigating things like uh, medical fraud, uh, psychics, paranormal, um, but very much in the, the vein of a scientific exploration of the universe, right? It was not anti-God, it was just, we're, we're pro-science in this skeptics community. Mm-hmm. And and back in um in 2004, when it got started, and I had just, you know, I had left Mormonism about a decade before that, it was super exciting. Like when you went to these, uh, or, or especially the first one, there was only like 250 people there, and about half of them were magicians because they all knew James Randi. And so it had this real like carnival atmosphere that it was all about science, all about skepticism, but it was a <laughs> and ton of over, magicians, over
1: here yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I mean that that uh, whole group is all the very
1: right?
2: pro science.
0: Yeah, they're very yeah. pro science, like Pen Pen Gillette and Teller, um, Lance Burton, Banachek, uh even David Copperfield.
2: I've all have those- uh,
1: yeah. and a check. I've seen him uh, in Colorado. We saw a show, it was just a, in a small theater. He had me come up on stage, and I was supposed to pick oh, a, awesome. bag, yeah. a bag for him to like slap down on, and I couldn't do it. And He's like, it's a <laughs> <pick."> <laughs> No, I, I think I picked it. I couldn't take his hand and hit it. He wanted me to take his hand and hit it over the spike or the thing. Oh, right, yeah, I have Absolutely. a spike, yeah. anyways. Yeah, yeah, but you're like, yeah. I can't do it. I don't
0: want to drive the nail through your hand, yeah. yeah yeah they do
1: that anyways those, those, uh, uh, sorry i interrupted days. you so, yeah there was well i, I kind of want to go back a little bit so i'm gonna i'm sure. gonna pause you a little so the when why were you going to the library like what motivated uh, what, triggered, you wanna... what triggered what triggered a... I'm, I'm just curious like yeah i guess I did something was something amiss or did you read something in a manual and the rest of it wasn't there (laughs) like I'm trying to figure out like what would have motivated me to go to a library (laughs) it's one thing to just click on a link right
0: yeah um that's a that's a good question because it it wasn't something that happened overnight and like I didn't just have like a one moment I got to run to the library this was more so my first wife uh got pregnant in late 1993 and I've, you know, been home from the mission. We got married four months after I'd been home in 1990. So we were a young couple, right? And uh, now that she was pregnant, I was thinking, well, I need to shore up my testimony here because I have some doubts and some questions that lingered over from my mission mm-hmm. and from conversation I was having. So really I went with the intent to shore up those doubts. I didn't go to crack anything open or tear down the church. I went with the. I've heard these things about the church. I don't really feel comfortable discussing some of these things, stuff i had heard. Uh, and a lot of it I was getting fired at. I guess there was actually a guy that I was working with um, who had left the church and had become a, a Christian and an evangelical, right? But I didn't really feel like any of the stuff that he was saying was was sticking, but I still felt like I needed to be better educated. So really, I went with the intent to to shore up. I wasn't going to deconstruct. I wasn't going to tear anything down, you know, I was going to the library to to improve my testimony. But um, I got tripped up along the way because I realized, I, I actually remember having this conversation with uh, someone it might have been this guy who I was talking with, where he was he said, um, you know, Troy, it seems like all you ever care about is proving that the church is right. All you're just in that mode of you know always apologizing, making excuses for the church whenever we have these discussions. I said no 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 my, my commitment is to whatever is true and I really mean that whatever is true I, I I'm going to follow and I realized when I said that that I meant it and and so when I was in the library and I was looking these stuff this stuff up when I started to run across some of the difficult things which back then it was all difficult right there was no cs letter there was there was nothing to to back you up there were no gospel talking essays there was really no place to go and so, um, it was all just me in the library, looking something up. And usually it was Mormonism shadow reality, where they'd have some crazy thing that that can't be right. And then I'd go and look it up in the journal of discourses. And go, oh, they're right. They you know, that really happened. Wow. And so as it, as it kind of accumulated and I, I dug into it, um, I could feel my, my faith in the church eroding. Uh, but my skepticism and science was kind of on the same time on a rise, you know, so I was kind of like almost making a slow trade over the course that. Ninety-four, yeah. Okay. Um, and I, and I hit it for my wife. <laughs> I didn't tell my wife until like late in 94. And I said, you know, I'm not so sure about some of this church stuff. And she was, she was a little bit, you know, unsure about it too, but, um, she eventually started to come around. We ended up both like, uh, leaving the church after okay. a while. But uh, anyway, that, that was the impetus back in, in, uh, 1994. Huh. So no, no okay. sudden, yeah, no sudden big thing that pushed on me. But right topic, ago. can
1: can you give me like a, a couple of topics that you were reading about in your, uh, in the book? And I, I haven't read the, is it the Tanner's book you said that you got a hold of? Yeah. So I guess that was, was kind of like your CES letter. It kind of introduced you to some things that you're like, wait, what? And then you went to verify it or disprove it. And then you couldn't.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, there was there was the Tanner's book. There's also um, uh, Von Brody's book, right? Von Brody's book was out then, too. So I ended up reading both of those together and then tried to fact check both of those. But it was mostly Mormonism, shadow of reality, mostly to prove them wrong. And then when I couldn't find there was anything wrong that they were right about everything they were saying, it got very difficult. But back then, 1994, you know, there was uh, joseph smith's polygamy was was not well accepted the stone in the hat the rock in the hat and all the magical stuff you know the stuff right. that michael quinn got to, none of that was was uh, mm. acceptable to talk about um pretty much everything that goes on in the church you know all the anachronisms that we now talk about with the book of mormon and all that that was back then i think still in 94 i think it's still said on the front page the principal ancestors of the american indians or whatever right They they still hadn't even moved away uh, because genetics hadn't been done yet. They hadn't moved away from that. So it was still that you know that that early 90s, late 80s Mormonism, which was very correlated, very kind of sharp, you know, like uh, this is exactly what we believe. Um, and anything outside of this is an anti-Mormon lie. and And that was pretty much what I faced when I went to talk to my bishops and state presidents back then, is I'd come in and I'd go, did you ever hear that, you know, David Whitmer said that Joseph Smith was like looking in a hat? To do this like with stone and they would be like, oh my gosh you are reading anti-mormon lies you gotta quit reading that right now you know get out of that. that absolutely did not happen and that's how it was treated back in 94 was like you did not talk about this stuff without facing potential some sort of you know discipline or or. and so i felt like there was very few people i could talk to
2: hmm.
0: back then about any of this
1: yeah, um, yeah it, it was
0: pretty lonely it was pretty lonely honestly Yeah, that,
1: that... <laughs> i feel like that's the the benefit of mormon stories and that ex-mormon world is anything it just helps you not feel crazy. So I mean here you are definitely feeling crazy. <laughs> like I don't know. That would be that would be rough and lonely for sure. I was just curious about some of those details like I um and and I guess I do want to add that you've you've done interviews uh, with Jacob Hansen about morality. So if anybody wants to check that out I'm, I'll link it. And then you've talked a little bit about this on Forest Channel as well, and so I listened to those, and then I was just I had um, further questions, and so I'm trying to fill in some holes that I was just curious about. Um, but yeah, going back to um, the amazing meetings with James mm-hmm. Randy, I I was curious how you even found. So you subscribe to a magazine, and then they just publish, "Hey, we're going to be meeting here. Come, come, <laughs> <laughs> buy a well, ticket." Well, like, how yeah. did you even know about these? gatherings.
0: I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, I ended up joining up with a forum back in like 1994, you know, those old online forums, the James Randi educational foundation, he had formed an educational foundation, which I learned later was because of the, you know, uh, a, a division in the earlier skeptics community. But anyway, he had formed his own, uh, educational foundation, which then turned into a forum, which is then I was on the forum interacting with other skeptics and stuff. And then when Randy first, they, they had their first amazing meeting in Florida. I didn't attend that one, but it, it looked great. There was like 150 people there. And then their second one, they moved it to Las Vegas. And that's where all the rest of them or most of the rest of them happened in Las Vegas for the next, uh, like dozen years, 13 years or something. And that's, that's when I started attending. When I saw that they were going to have this meeting in Vegas, I was like, oh, I got to drive down from Salt Lake because I was living in Salt Lake just to go to this, this meeting and meet some of these people that I've been talking to in the forums online. And that very first one there in Vegas was only about... 200, 250 people in that very small group. And it was a lot of them were luminaries. You know, I was, uh, or, or like what we might call celebrities. So, uh, I got to meet a lot of them and they were having these really great, interesting conversations that I hadn't ever experienced. And they were arguing with each other in a way that I hadn't experienced from, um, you know, growing up Mormon, it was like a new community and it felt very rich and very interesting and exciting. And of course, you know, the celebrity figures into it too, when you're sitting in a room and, you know. Ah, uh, Gillette is over there, and Bill Nye is over there, and Michael Shermer is right here, and Teller is sitting right next to me, and you know, and and uh, and crazy. you just kind of feel like you're like, oh, I'm part of the skeptics community, and and it kind of had that new feeling, um, and, uh, and and so I I think that the that initial excitement really carried me through for a few years, but then as you said, you know, later things get into the the social justice side, and and uh, after. Uh, so Richard Dawkins joins up with the amazing meeting. He shows up around the third year and, uh, and, uh, then he publishes the God delusion, I think in 2006 and the amazing meeting was never intended to be a new atheist meeting. Right. But it started to take on some new atheist attributes. Once Dawkins was a regular speaker and Christopher Hitchens showed up there and then Dan Dennett showed up. And so we had like, you know, these, at least three of the four horsemen were regulars at the amazing meeting. They would show up every year and they would talk about you know god issues but it wasn't really a an atheist conference if that makes any sense you know it was it was a skeptics and science conference yeah
1: well it's interesting because you look at randy james randy he doesn't seem to care much about what you believe about god but it's interesting how uh i watched i watched um a documentary recently the, the old documentary but it was up on youtube and You know, he's in a classroom and he gives a whole classroom a horoscope and he asks Mm -hmm. them, hey, how closely was this? And all of them said it was really, really close. And then they pass it on back and they're all embarrassed because it's the same horoscope and they all thought it matched them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he's just kind of teaching them about how how that works and how your mind works. And then this kid is you can clearly tell he's defending religion. And he's all defensive. And it's interesting because he never said anything about God or religion or anything. It's just you naturally get defensive when those mechanisms are poked at. So I I don't know. It was interesting to to watch, I guess.
0: Yeah, I I, uh, as I interacted with the skeptics and because they're always busting psychics, right? And they were doing that million dollar challenge stuff. But there was a lot there in that magical worldview that aligned with a lot of Mormons you know, the Mormon magical worldview. And I could Mm -hmm. see a lot of these sort of things more clearly once I started to, to, um, look at things through that, that skeptical lens, right. You know, the, the, the stone in the hat went from being like, oh man, that is really weird to being like, dude, that was almost certainly a trick, right? (laughs) It had to be that he was hiding parchment or something, because that's how you start to think as a skeptic, like, what are they trying to do? How would they go about trying to fool people? Oh, and and like RFM has talked about this because he's got magic training, too. He's like, oh, as soon as you start seeing the props that are involved, you start thinking in a different way. You're like, oh, this is deliberate deception intended to get people to believe something. Mm -hmm. Joseph Smith is acting just like any of these other psychics. I mean, you know, they do all these same things, give you a prop, but you can't really investigate it too closely. Oh, they, you know, they have little things to make you think they're doing stuff, but they're really misdirecting. So I started to see Smith Joseph Smith in kind of that same magical psychic view, but with a Christian bent as how he initiated into, you know, the Mormon whole uh, worldview. And then it turns out, you know, Michael Quinn sees it the same way, right? Michael Quinn also Mormonism, the magical worldview, and the book he wrote was was the same idea that uh, you know a lot of magic in early in early Mormonism. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so so there was there's there's that. I guess, uh, consilience between kind of the psychics and, and stuff and the religion. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of the same things apply in yeah. how people approach.
1: Right. What they believe. Yeah. yeah. So I, I i can try to think of, um, we're jumping around here a little bit, but how are your relationships when you first left too? um, jumping back and forth? I, I like to talk. I don't know were, were they successful like was the relationships with your your parents and your family that are all still practicing um this is like unheard of to just have someone just stop yeah right like it's not yeah. like it's not like you were just a jack mormon or you know what i mean you were like intentionally nope this is not good that that, that had to be pretty one off well
0: kept it quiet for about three years, like from 93 to about 96. I didn't really tell my family. I mean, of course, you know, my wife knew, um, but very few, you know, almost nobody else knew, but eventually my wife's parents started asking questions about, you guys aren't going to church as much as you used to. You guys, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, uh, my wife at the time, I'm divorced now. I'm remarried, got a nice new, new wife. Who's awesome. But, um, (laughs) but you know, because we got married a lot under the church. Once the church leaves your life, you end up with that. Well, now why are we together? So but, anyway.
1: yeah, but did, what do we really have in common?
0: Right. Yeah. Fortunately, we had the kids we ended up staying married for 20 years, but it became pretty apparent after the church left our life that, that we were a little different people, you know, it was mm. more apparent then, but so my wife knew, but my family didn't, her family picked up on it. First, her mom asked her, and then she said a little something. And then her dad and then I got involved and so eventually it, we we basically came out <laughs> okay we don't really believe in about 1996 97 and that's when all the tears started from the parents My well, mom cried a lot
1: Meanwhile, you know you her- like over the hard part of leaving right like where your world's cla- caving in or did you not even go through that I don't know
0: uh oh well it's funny because I've, you know, like, uh, like I watched your interview with uh, Brittany and several other folks. They they go through that kind of collapse into nihilism. I don't feel like I went through that quite the same way. I felt not, like not I was
1: nihilism. I would just just that disappointment of
0: oh disappointment for sure. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, like just that you have the world figured out and then you realize you don't. Like that just leaves you in some pretty like. Whoa, what just happened? Like, and then not only that, you can't ever picture you being the person that that went that is going through that. Like that was always somebody else. That wasn't you, that wasn't the type of person you were, because you're faithful, you know? Like, I don't know. I don't know if anyway. So I'm just yeah. So you you've already gone through that part of it. And then here you are three years later, and now there's tears coming from your family that just barely found Boy. out that you're probably okay by then, right?
0: Uh, well, I don't know if okay, would quite be the right, but I was, I was a little more prepared for the reaction because you'd had Mm -hmm. time thinking about what's going to happen when the family and friends find out. And in a way, I think that because I had those years of kind of thinking about it and what it was that I believed that I felt a lot more compassion for them. And so in a way I was like trying to help them through it. Like I remember my, my parents being fairly upset, but I wasn't right. I had already kind of made peace with it to a degree. And right. so I was like, I understand this is difficult for you. I you know, I was doing a lot of that, like helping them <laughs> understand my lack of belief, which I think is different than when most people come out to their family. It's their family's just, you know, attacking them for leaving. And in my case, uh, they, they, it, they didn't really attack me. It was more like it's too late. You've already left. And we're just sad, I guess. You know, it was not yeah. a I didn't have big fights or anything like that. Didn't go through any of that. It was more like we've already lost our our son to this crazy scientific skepticism worldview you know
1: (laughs) that's an interesting timeline because i was just thinking too a lot of times people ask you like right when you're realizing that you're like this isn't what i believe anymore this doesn't seem right they're always like well what do you believe and you're like i don't know (laughs) so that is good that you had some time to kind of formulate your thoughts around that too that's would have been helpful because we told people pretty much right when we left. And so we were like, I don't know. Like, and then I don't know Feels like a really great thing to say too. It still does, but it um, never felt okay before then. Right. You always had to know, (laughs) try to know, but, um, but yeah, I I think I remember um, a lot of those conversations I had were right then though. And we haven't really talked since then. I just remember feeling like, I didn't have anything to give them, but now I feel like I'm a little bit more stable, I guess. Yeah, where yeah. I'm at, and but I don't like necessarily bring it up anymore. If they'd asked, I'd tell them, but it just it's, it doesn't matter to me much anymore the difference of our beliefs. So it's like I just don't bother bringing it up. But, anyways, it's nice that you kind of had that foundation too that you could help. Yeah. Pull up.
0: Well, the, and, and it was really because we spent like three years being quiet about things, not really bringing it up. And then it, and then it took another three years. So I didn't resign officially off the records until 99. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wasn't, wasn't a believer for about six years there, but I, I was giving everybody plenty of time to go like, you know, <laughs> nice and slow. Uh, Troy's on his way out of the church.
1: <laughs> did did yeah. you resign um, just so that you weren't um, being bothered anymore? Or what was your reason Sense for been- that?
0: sense of integrity um in fact that was that was the whole thing for me the whole way along right i i don't have anger towards the church i don't like feel like i was manipulated or misled or you know any of the john de oh we hate the church now no i didn't have that
1: you never went through an angry phase,
0: huh i i I went through a a mildly angry phase but because of the the situation again you know it's happening 93 nobody knew any of this stuff Right. So when I went talk to a bishop or a state president or anybody who was trying to get answers, none of them had heard of any of this. Right. They were all living in that correlated, nice late 80s thing. So so there was nobody to talk to. And I couldn't really be angry because nobody was deceiving me deliberately Mm -hmm. at that level. Right. All the friends, family, everybody around me, they they all believed, you know, the the same thing I did. So for me, it was a, a sense of of repeated disappointment. That I'd come around and try and talk to somebody, realize they had heard nothing about this. They thought it was completely ridiculous. You know, anything that I brought up, any anachronism, whatever it was, no matter how small it was, it was like, this is ridiculous. And then it was shut down the conversation and turn into, you need to have more faith and pray. And and we would just go down that route every time. Hmm. So, so in a way, it was disappointment, but not anger, because I felt like nobody was deliberately trying to deceive me. I didn't have that sense. Instead, I just felt like, oh, my goodness, I've discovered something about this faith in which I grew up, it's too bad that it's not real, but um, I guess I need to figure out what I'm going to do about that and cope, you know, uh, move ahead. And uh, I just didn't dwell on the, on the negativity of discovering that. Instead, I started trying to figure out what it was that I did believe. And and in a way I never went through like a, a bitter phase where I was really angry at the church. So,
1: so that's, That's interesting because that's one of the things I wanted. I wonder, um, is if, so I I mentioned earlier how it seems like I have to hand it to Mormon stories at least because they've been around long enough to be somewhere where everybody knows to go when you leave, right? And then at the same hand, like, okay, yes, it's helpful because you help me feel like I'm not crazy. And then I'm like, what but did it make it worse? You know, did it, could have it been easier if it wasn't with other people, like encouraging you to be tribally angry at, yes, you know,
0: yes, <laughs> like, yeah.
1: I've, well, I've wondered that, like, you know, people like to say net positive, net good on the church. And then I'm like, I'm also like net positive, net negative um, for the ex-Mormon space. But then at the same time, like the. The popularity, I can't blame it on John DeLynn. I think it happens. Like, I feel like the internet has made that possible. The way we do social media, the way we interact online is that it's a result of that. It's not a result of John DeLynn. I don't think John DeLynn is doing anything particularly evil. It's just yeah. someone, someone was going to feed, feed, fill that void. And he's the one that's been the most consistent to be around long enough to keep it one area like consistent but um so yeah i don't know like i I like the online world but then i hate it at the same time and i'm like a hypocrite for being here and recording this and i'm going to publish it so it's like (laughs) i don't know what to do about that but anyway thoughts (laughs) i just rambled Uh,
0: yeah well i uh i guess um i want to be uh careful about uh, talking about delin because I actually think he's got a really great purpose, right? That in fact, historically, he he served this really great role in the Mormon Stories podcast of people who are leaving the church, having a voice, recognizing that there are people out there, just being yeah. able to vent and discuss that. I believe, however, however that Dylan ended up being audience captured, uh, where that he started to make his money off of people being outraged, And, and wanted to, you know, get lots of views, get lots of clicks, get lots of people paying attention. And I believe that the the Mormon Stories podcast became basically a tabloid sort of thing where now it's constantly, what's the worst news going on in the church every day? And let's, let's drum it up and make it even, you know, more so because we need views and we need donors and we need subscribers, right? It became a business that was was being driven by outrage clicks or outrage is what it felt like to me. Right. Not all the time. Sometimes they really have some, some good, uh, stuff. And I've, I've loved a lot of the Mormon story stuff, but, but like, I don't feel comfortable with that Mormon stories group. Right. I'm an ex Mormon myself, but I'm like, man, you guys are way too hard on the church <laughs> is my, my general. Tribal, right? I mean, That's kind yeah. Of a, very tribal. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's interesting. Cause I remember one of early on, I was really gravitating toward the people that would help me stay balanced and like, and and like you said, not just totally only. I didn't want to look at the church in a flip flopped way. Like before the church, everything the church touched was gold, right? Like it was perfect. I didn't want to just flip flop that and be like, everything the church does is terrible. Obviously, right? <clears throat> and um, I remember there was like a really early episode that John Dillon did with Margie and they were just talking about how they were trying to encourage people to come out of their angry phase and just acknowledge the church for the good that it did. And yeah, I don't see videos like that anymore. Like that. I do remember seeing those types of videos early on, but here's the weird thing. Who do you blame the people that are not clicking on that (laughs) or you know what i mean or the people producing the thing that people want to watch like like audience capture is such a weird thing to me because it is what people want to see so um is that wrong to produce stuff that people want to see because i don't know it's it's an interesting problem i guess i find it fascinating but
2: yeah
0: i i don't think that um there's anything wrong with with necessarily audience capture it's just that one of those things you need to kind of be aware of that if you i mean it happened to me on my youtube channel too like i would make some videos they would be very very popular and so i'd say well i'll make another video like that because a lot of people want to watch it but yeah. then i'd make a different video and hardly anybody would watch that and yeah. say like well i guess there's not that much of an audience so you don't make that and if you do that enough times you just kind of end up with a capture of i'm making all these videos all the time and for me that's what happened to mormon stories in fact i i, I think around the brad wilcox time frame you know they Brad Wilcox does a, does a racism, you know, or whatever. They like had a telethon that week, like every day it was like, oh my gosh, you know, Brad Wilcox said something racist. We have to talk about it every day. Join, subscribe, donate. Brad Wilcox is bad. Join, subscribe, donate that whole week. you know." <laughs>
1: yeah. I, My excuse for like even starting the channel was that I, I really felt this pull for bridge building, like. It's like you have the echo chamber where they're pointing at the church and saying, here's all these terrible things. And you have a bunch of the apologist channels too. And I just would rather they talk to each other directly instead of, then they can't misrepresent each other. But that just doesn't happen. And it's really hard to do. Um, The other thing is there were things that I found helpful and mindsets that I found helpful for uh, maintaining relationships with members. And like, so like I made like a whole slideshow of good resources and books to read and stuff like that for having relationships across different divides and stuff like that. But people don't click on that. They don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, what do you do? Um, maybe it's not that helpful or yeah, it's just not sensational enough, I guess.
0: Yeah. I, I think a lot of it is sensationalism. Yeah. Pe- people want to click on something that well, and, and, uh, I do it myself too. You know, I'll click on something uh-huh. that looks more outrageous than something that looks, you know, oh, something that's just every day. You could probably
1: yeah. learn from, right. Yeah, Or something you you're like, I probably had to click on that so I could learn something versus clicking on something that you just, yeah. That outrages you for sure. Yes. Um, yeah, so you said you have a kid. How was it raising kids? That's the other thing. That's, when you leave. I've, I've,
0: I've got two two sons. Um, they're both growing up now. Uh yeah, that was that's really interesting. In fact, if there's anything that I regret now that I'm old and retired, is that when I raised my my two sons, I raised them without the church, right? Mm-hmm. And so they were raised mostly by um, you know, school and community and friends. And we did not find any like replacement for the church right they they just were raised uh without um any sort of like religious central sort of dogmatic belief i mean they, they i'm sure they picked up on uh you know what myself and and uh, my first wife believe but yeah there, there was no no clear clear framework that we were pushing onto them and sometimes i have regrets about oh i should have taught them this or I should have been more like you know focused But at the time, I think it was just, oh, you know, we'll just raise them to be good people. We'll just, you know, be kind, be nice to people, uh, teach them kind of basic social skills and, and uh, a scientific mindset. They're both pretty scientifically minded. Neither of them are are religious in any way that I know of. And so, um, it it seems to work out. Okay. Right. I, I, you know, when we go on vacations and everything, I, I can't see that they missed out from having uh, you know, a, a big sweeping grand cosmic purpose that everybody else seems to feel like they need in order to be happy and successful after they leave Mormonism. In a way, it's almost like a, a test, right? If you weren't raised with that, if you weren't raised with the idea that there's a grand cosmic purpose, but just were raised like my, my boys were with the idea of, oh, you know, we're just humans on this planet doing the best we can, you know, uh, probably evolved from, you know, other beings and stuff, other, other creatures. And so it's all up to us, just us out here. And, and I think if you're raised with that viewpoint, you tend to view humanity in a different light than if you view it as the center of everything and the whole universe is made for you. Right. And it's all great, big, grand plan. Um, which is, I think a lot of times the religious way of looking at the world, put it all into a super framework, the grand cosmic purpose and people fit into it. But I don't know that you need that necessarily in order to be happy and fulfilled in life, despite what I think a lot of people believe when they come out of Mormonism, you know, they go looking for the grand sweeping cosmic purpose and they don't find it. And they feel like, oh, I'll, I'll never feel fulfilled again or something, you know, Hmm. And, and maybe there's some truth to that. I think it's more about just recognizing this is how the world really is. We're just humans on this planet, right? we're just trying to figure things out and all this stuff with religion and all this stuff with, with, uh, trying to make sense of the universe. That's just little monkey brains here, trying to make sense of the world in which we live the tribalism that we evolved into spilling over into, into, into a religious way of viewing the world so that we can have these meta tribes. But I don't see it as like, that means we do have a grand cosmic purpose that we're out to discover. Does that make sense? Like you no. just kind of change your worldview and it, it, it helps. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I can hear Jake Hansen saying something like, well, your, your boys still got to grow up in a, a society that was mostly religious or most. Right. And so they were giving, they were getting those values through, through the, the swimming pool they were swimming in. Um,
0: right. that That I, Tom Holland notion of Christian dominion, which I don't think really, makes, uh, there's some truth to it, but, um, I think if you look at it, it's not, it's not like Christianity is a hundred percent of all the values. There's a lot of classical liberal values that, you know, that underpin, yeah. uh, you know, the United well, States that are not Christian. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The thing that, <clears throat> that argument kind of falls flat for me too, is there was something before Christianity too. And so it's just built on, built right. on, built on. So I don't have a problem with taking the next step. It seems natural, but I am cautious in that like well, is there a structure there that we're living off of fumes like i would I don't know, maybe, um, I don't have super strong opinions, it's definitely <clears throat> not um when someone uses that argument, it's not something I say, I scoff at, like I take it seriously, but and then i'm not I'm not convinced by it, I guess, um. I, that's that's cool though that your boys they they never grew up and had some kind of meaning crisis or like they needed to have um what about like spiritual practices any kind of meditative reflective kind of habits that you help them develop or to have they've developed anything like that on their own? I'm kind of curious about that too
0: um none of which I'm aware we didn't really uh, have any of that growing up you know um we played a lot of video games right because I was a video game developer and so my kids grew up in this world of of dad plays video games and we play video games with dad all the time <laughs> right so there there was, there was that activity. kind of bonding yeah that, that that kind of thing went went down um and i still do that like i still play you can see over there's my little vr headset i still play that with my uh, son in phoenix every week right so we get on and we spend time playing vr golf every week so you know you still have that connection and um, but, but, um technology. no yeah. <laughs> I, uh, no like uh, core moral like this is your this is your uh, ten Commandments or anything like that. No, nothing mm-hmm. like that one down. Uh, later, I got into meditation myself, you know, kind of the Buddhist meditation through Sam Harris and kind of the demystified version of meditation that that he promotes, which kind of, you know strips away all of the kind of the woo as woo-woo aspects and just focuses in on the neurobiological stuff. And I think that's really worthwhile. I'm really glad I got into the meditation with Sam Harris, but that's about it as far as spiritual practices that I can think of. Yeah.
1: How how come you've been happy about it? Like, uh, how's it been helpful?
0: With meditation? Mm-hmm. Um, it caused me to completely rethink how uh, I viewed the world. It made me, it actually did a lot um, about making me rethink free will mm. uh, through meditation. I mean, and, and I, think, I think anybody can learn this in meditation in about 60 seconds, right? Sit down and you're just going to experience the world for the next, you know, five minutes and not think, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to experience the world and you can't do it. When you first start meditating, you'll find your mind popping off, going all over the place. And to me, that was a real recognition to go, you know what, I'm not all in control of my thoughts, am I? You know, my thoughts are bubbling up all the time. And that, you know, that's, that's a really worthwhile thing, I think, to learn. Um, not only for yourself, but for everybody else to kind of recognize in other people that, um, you know, if we're all biological entities and we're all having these thoughts pop into our head, thanks to the way our brains work, it's, it's, um, it's hard to be really judgmental of people or look down on people because everybody's kind of going through their own uh, experience of, of reality and everybody has their own kind of um, perspective on things. So it's hard, it's hard for me to think. Oh, that person's a bad person. Uh, I'm more likely to think, oh, there might be something wrong in their brain. You know, I'm a little bit more on that side of things, hmm. um, just because of the, the the materialist basis of of um, the brain that that I've come to see as reality. So, you know, it's 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 kind of it's against that free will a little bit, but I'm also a compatibilist, so I also still believe in free will. But
1: <laughs> I find uh, the the thing I find fascinating. With the like rider and the elephant analogy, that makes a lot of sense to me. But it does seem like there are ways that you can nudge and tweak if you consistently work at it. I think we're very habitual creatures. And so it's, you can develop habits. And then as you develop those habits, they have better or worse outcomes, right? So, um and I can see how like a meditative practice would be good, but I definitely suck at that. There's there's nothing like that going on with me regularly. It's sometimes I can do it, but yeah, I think that would be beneficial, but I was never good at praying either. So there's that, yeah. that's probably why I left. <laughs>
0: I, th- I think meditation and prayer are related in some ways. So yeah, they're kind of just different ways of approaching, you know, how you interface with, with, uh, with your world, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So back to new atheism movement. So tell me about, so when, when Dawkins brought in the God delusion type atheism into that, you know, what was already the skeptic movement, I guess, like, did everyone just accept it or was there like, Hey, what are you doing here? You're overtaking this.
0: Uh, that's, that is, that's a wonderful question. Um, because behind the scenes, you know, uh, I think that there was quite a bit of discussion in the James Randi educational foundation about how much they were going to, address the question of atheism because there were other atheist groups that sprung up, sprung up right away. Right. There was, you know, atheists, United American atheists, and they were very clearly, we are opposed to God, right? The James Randi educational foundation was still trying to maintain its kind of skeptics and science position. And so I remember there were conversations that they would have, How much do we talk about God in these meetings here at this, you know, these skeptics conferences? and uh, And sometimes there would be uh, arguments that would break out. And I remember Eugenie Scott, I actually sent you a picture. you know, Eugenie Scott, um, she's the National Center for Director or the director of the National Center for Science Education was in a meeting where she was one of those who's like I don't think we need to discuss god you know we're we're talking about science this doesn't need to be at all about god here we're just we're we're pro science right we're 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 advocating for something rather than trying to take something mm-hmm. down we're not trying to take down god we're trying to promote science that was kind of her position uh Jamie Ian Swiss who was there and a magician said well you know Atheism is the unified field theory of skepticism. It's where you end up if you're consistently skeptic. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're always trying to ask for evidence, you're going to wind up eventually saying there's not enough evidence for God. So atheism is related to skepticism. Mm-hmm. And then I remember Penn Jillette actually, you know, got up out of his chair and said, if we have any obligation, moral obligation in life, it's to tell the effing truth as we see it. And that was, that's always been like, like Penn Jillette's position is like, you need to tell the truth. And if you're an atheist, you, you better tell the truth, you know, that that's how you view. So within that little skeptics community there that I was kind of, you know, in the periphery of, they weren't even sure what they wanted to do with God, but that it's felt like skepticism leads to atheism. Eventually, you're going to get there. As soon as you start approaching the world from a scientific skeptical mindset, you're, you're going to wind up at that, that bottom of you know, okay, there's there's probably not enough evidence for God. You know, Shermer. It's very much Shermer's position, Sagan's position. They they weren't anti-God. They were just I don't see the evidence for God in my scientific worldview. Therefore, I'm an atheist by default. Um, so does that make does that kind of help make sense about the whole situation there? So so yeah. when Dawkins came in, everybody received him. Everybody liked him. But there were still discussions about what are we trying to do here um, in this particular. Uh, James Randi position because it wasn't an atheist conference like the others.
1: So. Well, with your with your hindsight now, do you feel like having that? Do you feel like well, there's two ways to look at this. Was the natural progression that they go down the social justice route, and that's actually the truth that you should be in, but you are somehow <laughs> probably just a privileged white male, right? Like <laughs> so. Is that the natural progression is where everybody is going to end up or was there something wrong with that way that they were promoting it instead of just continuing to promote critical thinking and skepticism and falling for this, well, we're going to be against religion without, I don't know. I would say without grappling with some ideas, like, I don't know. Does it, I feel like the Jordan Peterson ideas and stuff—they didn't take seriously or didn't know about—but I think they're worth looking at. <clears throat> anyway,
0: yeah. So um, within the kind of the skeptics community, and uh, and Michael Shermer talked about it in his interview with John DeLynn, around 2009, 2010 is when the social justice movement uh, caused the rift in the the burgeoning kind of skeptics atheist movement. It, it didn't rift until about 2009, 2010. And um, so prior to that, there wasn't a strong at least I wasn't aware of a strong social justice aspect to the atheist movement. Um, And then what happened is around. 2000. Well, there's there's some backstory, but around 2010, they got the idea of atheism was insufficient. We needed more. And that's when it became atheism plus. And there was a movement within atheism, which which was actually called atheism plus, which they said, we agree with the ideals of atheism plus we stand for the following like 12 items and it was you know uh climate change justice and uh lgbt issues and race issues and gender and feminism issues and and so they basically had this this checklist of of things that if you're a good atheist if you're a proper atheist you join atheism plus and get on board the social justice train and and the same
1: thing as humanism or is that different it was different. Okay. Yeah,
0: because the, the, the secular humanist movement way predates or, you know, goes way back. Uh, it's more classical liberal. That's where you get your human rights and stuff. Human the declaration of human rights is clear back in like the 1940s, 1950s or something. That's kind of the secular humanist movement. But then the social justice movement kind of latched onto it around 2009, 2010 and pulled a lot of the atheists into the already burgeoning social justice movement and a lot of them left right uh, most of i think the atheist movement became social justice but not all of it the mm-hmm. ones that all the guys that i've spoken about so far they're all still in that enlightenment atheist thing and all critics of woke right all of them uh, Shermer, dawkins harris uh dennett all of them criticized i'm the trying woke to think of yeah. talks i don't
1: have ever really and
0: anti-woke too yeah is he i
1: Probably. i haven't heard him talk much about it he's he's anti a lot of things, especially like he, he was, I saw a a clip of him talking about how he has been rethinking libertarianism because of how so many conservatives have um, taken that and like the Trumpy type people. And he doesn't like that selfishness. He thought that libertarianism is like, you're going to have the freedom and And that with that freedom, you'll take care of each other. You don't need a government to come take care of it for you kind of idea. But then like, I guess, I don't know through the COVID and masks and stuff. He's been, I don't know. He's talked a little different since then. So I was just, I don't know. He doesn't seem as solid as he once seemed to me. (laughs) He was a big part of me waking up, uh, pen, pen teller.
0: I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, yep. and and to be fair you can meet any of them and they're all just as cool in person if you ever do you know like well not oh, randy because cool. he's dead now but yeah teller teller is amazing you never see him on stage because he, he he plays that role of he doesn't speak but when he's off stage he'll talk quite freely right he has no problem right i've seen i've seen his google yeah.
1: his google uh talk or whatever when he was yeah and i was like oh that's what this, it's not what i thought he would sound like
0: <laughs> yeah uh. But so, yeah. So both both Penn Gillette and Teller are well known uh, Randian objectivists, right? They really buy into the Ayn Rand stuff, or at least they used to. I think Teller still does. Penn may have backed off on it, but they used to talk about, you know, their libertarianism was Ayn Rand's objectivism. They were, yeah. they were pretty clear about that.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, I, I remember um seeing some YouTube videos where they were defending the second amendment. And I was like, what? <laughs> I <It> was hard <laughs> to believe because they seemed to run around with the Hollywood crowd and, you know, it just, it just didn't seem to fit. So it was a pleasant surprise for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, it's one of those things that, so when I left Mormonism, I really left it right. I didn't pay any attention from about 96 ish clear until uh, 2021 when due to things with my parents, I, Got back into Mormonism, or I started paying attention to it again. So for that whole block right there, I I paid very little attention to to what was going on in in the LDS Church.
1: How much did it change? What? What? A lot. A ton.
0: What was different? Everything. First of all, so so let me tell you the little background about how I got back into paying attention to the ex-Mormon community, because like I said, I was totally out of it, not paying any attention. But I was talking to my dad about LDS issues and this is in 2021. And I said something like, well, if Thomas S. Monson came down and told you this, and my dad goes, Thomas S. Monson? I'm like, yeah, you know, the prophet. He's like, he's been dead for three years. (laughs) And, and, you know, this is 2021. I was like, oh man, I am so out of Mormonism that I don't even know who the prophet is. And he's been dead for three years. I realized that I had to go back to it if I wanted to talk to my parents about Mormon issues anymore. So I started, you know, I got back on the internet and and the thing that just blew my mind when I came back to it, in fact, I told my, my wife, I remember doing this, um, I saw that clip of of uh, President Nelson putting his face in that hat, right? Have you seen it?
1: Oh, right, that was bizarre. Yeah.
0: And, and I had never seen it and I swear that was a deep fake. I'm like, oh my gosh, they've totally deep faked this, you know, that, that can't be real. And then I looked at it closer and, and I was like, no, wait, he really did? Are they allowed to talk about this now? <laughs> You know, <laughs> it blew my mind. Huh. I was like, they they can talk and people still believe what's going on. Oh, I right? guess
1: there probably was a lot that changed. I mean, there were the uh, the letters, uh, not the yep. letters, the essays. Like that was yeah, definitely they, not a thing. That wasn't there.
0: Yeah. Uh, I knew about the CES letter because when the CES letter was published, somehow it got sent to me and I uh, Read through it, and then I contacted Jeremy Reynolds, and I and I said, "Hey, uh, this is great," and he said, "Thanks," and that was it, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> but yeah. that was it. Like I just...
1: it's a pretty good summary for sure.
0: Yeah, that, and it's, I was so, like, it's "Oh wow, it, I wish I had this." Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> funny how some apologists will be like, "Oh, it's nothing," and I'm just like, Yeah. Mm, okay, <laughs> you can keep saying that." My brother says it's nothing. Um.
0: Well, I think in the modern day, now that they've had time to respond to it, you know, there are a lot of responses to the CES letter, but, uh, you know, back 20 years ago or something, there was nothing there. It was just like, did you know this? And you'd look it up and sure enough, Joseph Smith, 14 year old Helen Mark Kimball, what, you know, (laughs) that's what you were dealing with.
1: I, I feel like the church, um, I think they, they missed the mark. Um, I think they should have addressed some of these things before the internet came out and that things would have boded a lot better. And then, and then people would have developed these ideas, these apologetic things, you know, and there wouldn't have been really anything being hidden from them. I don't know. Like they might've lost some people along the way, but it wouldn't have been like it is now. I don't think. And the belief would be different too. Like people would have integrated all of those things into the belief and the belief probably would have changed a little bit to, or like the, the, culture would have changed. So you didn't have to feel like you had to get up on in church and say, I know the church is true. Right. right. Like the culture could have changed or they could have gone towards some kind of Jordan Peterson, the kind of metaphorical belief or something. But instead they just doubled down and Ugh, it's too bad. <laughs> well, I like- definitely missed the mark.
0: And now that I'm kind of back re-engaging with some of the, you know, the ex Mormon community and the, in the church, to me, it looks much different than when I left. It now looks much more like a corporation, right? When I, when I, now that I've come back and looking at the LDS church, and in fact, uh, most of what the church does makes sense to me through that corporate lens, you know, uh, the, the, recent hiring of Sherinian that everybody's freaking out about, you know? Uh, or, or is the church going to change its policy on LGBT stuff or whatever? I'm like, I think they just hired him to probably meet some sort of DEI or ESG requirements for the corporation, right? I, it doesn't feel to me like it's a whole repositioning or a whole, you know, it just feels like regular kind of corporate level. We're pulling people in to improve our image rather than we're getting ready to change doctrine, but I don't know, I guess we'll see how it plays out.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing to not love Salt Lake and to kind of like how they do the ward local stuff. But the ward local stuff is also supported by the Salt Lake thing. So it's like not, it's not disconnected. But at the same time, a lot of my animosity or like judgment is definitely in Salt Lake than it is the local ward. I like the people in the ward, you know, and I like that they're volunteering their time. There's There's a, admirable things there. But then in Salt Lake, I'm just it's a corporation and it's not a church, you know, the local ward is a church, the Salt Lake city is not a church in my head. Like, um, but at the same time, the ward can't live without Salt Lake. So I don't know. It's, it's, just, yeah. it's an interesting beast, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah we're, we're John, Go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just gonna say John DeLynn. one of his better interviews that I really liked was with Roger Hendricks and he, uh, you know, he's the business, uh, manager, I guess, for the church quite historically, but he views the church through that same business lens. And I, I've found that to be like really useful because then you start to view what the church is doing is kind of selling a product. You know, the gospel is the product and, uh, and they're, uh, constantly revising it and tweaking it, trying to figure out, you know, uh, what sells, what doesn't sell, what works, what doesn't work. And when, when you look at it through that lens, a lot of what the church is up to starts to make a little bit more sense, you know, that they're adjusting and changing adapting all the time to try and keep the product um viable so that people continue to subscribe
2: (laughs) basically
1: yeah Yeah. and that's interesting because you could if you think of like a franchise or something like that i'm sure there's um store branches that you could go to and the, it's nice to work at that store because it's got a good manager and all those things and they can live without the franchise you know it's you can see parallels everywhere <laughs> it's definitely yeah i could see that um yeah where where do you see the church in five years so it seems like a lot has it's been is it just because i've been here or has it been crazy in the last five years
0: with the stuff with the lds church uh yeah. I, i'd say yeah it, it well, I've only been paying attention for the last three and what I've noticed is every day there's something crazy. Like I yeah. turn on, you know, YouTube. Wow, what's this crazy new story or this new change? So yeah, it does look to me like there's a lot of stuff happening in the it
1: makes you wonder what it feels like from the if like from you're practicing and you're kind of unaware of the ex Mormon space if it's if it's uh feeling like that from that side or not. I, I wouldn't know. Like I don't talk to maybe I should talk to some people and find out if they'd be honest <laughs> um yeah what do you see in church in five years do you think it's much is different um i
0: Same. don't know that's that's uh, that's that's a that's a pretty good question i think uh i i think there might be a schism on the way actually honestly and, and it's hard for me to you know put it together but i could see something where the church does in its corporate wisdom uh uh, change some key policies around maybe lgb lgbtq issues the the gay issues and as a result of that you get a some sort of break off like people saying we can't deal with this because it's against the core drop you know jacob hansen uh, has said he would leave and i suspect that others probably would too that might happen in the next five years but it also might not right it's it's kind of one of those i i to me my interest in the church is no longer pro-church or anti-church it's me, Observation, just, right? Observation. I'm. I now consider myself kind of an uh, anthropologist, right? Like I'm, I'm coming around. Ooh, what's going on it's now? Tarot, oh, wow. can't
1: stop looking at. It.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, and, it, and it, that's the other thing that changed about the church is you know um, it's huge now in terms of money, right?
1: Hmm. When at I was least uh, the man now we know about it, huh?
0: Yeah. When I was a missionary, this is when they started that. That's Gordon B. Hinckley days, right? When they started investing all the stuff was back when I was a missionary. And so the church wasn't a super rich institution then, right. It was flood the world with the book of Mormon, uh, Ezra Taft Benson days. If you can, you know, way back then. And now I come back to the church and it's the richest thing on the planet, you know, more rich than the Catholic church has ever been. And, and it's just kind of amazing that, that the church is this huge corporate entity that, uh, I did not see that coming in <laughs> 1990. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like apple computer now or something. It's, it's a monster. It's really big.
1: It's pretty crazy. Um, uh, okay. You're in Vegas. Is that right?
0: Well, Southern Nevada. Yeah. Vegas is down the road. I'm actually living, uh, in Mesquite, Nevada, which is on the border of St. George or Utah border. right? You're I'm in West, Benton country.
1: Where would you put the church? Is it schismed or not? Where would you put your odds? <laughs>
0: <laughs> in five years? Yeah. There, well, I don't know. I don't, I'm not even sure what I mean by a schism because things are always breaking off. Um,
1: but it'd have to it have to be upper leaders, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know what? I I don't I don't think when I when I really push into it, when I try and force myself to make decision, I uh, I think that Dallin Oaks will still be at the top of the church in five years, which means I don't think the policy on LGB has changed.
1: And because he's and because he's the guy that signs the checks and signs the thing and has all that wealth, you know, I don't see anybody else leaving except for in... Their little waves, you know, like right, right, yeah, that's probably right. Um, yeah, what do you think about the X Mormon? Uh, what about the X Mormon online space? Where is it in five years? Do we got like <laughs> a thousand more podcasts, or like, yeah, what's happening there?
0: Uh, I think we're hitting market saturation already.
1: <laughs> that happened a long time ago.
0: Yeah, um, I think there's so many people jumping on the on the the field here that it's uh, starting to rob from each other, right? The different different podcasts are starting to pull from each other, which is, uh, kind of smart that they're now trying to consolidate and have, you know, Mormon news roundup where they get together and discuss things as kind of a group consolidated group of ex-Mormons. But, um, yeah, as far as the podcasting space, the Mormon space, I think it'll still be around. There'll still be a, a a need for it, but I bet it's, um, I don't know, actually, I bet it, it continues to diversify. That's what seems to happen. Is that people just keep finding more and more of their little kind of cliques or areas. You know, I hang out with the porch time guys and there must be dozens of us, right? That's the whole group. (laughs) There's like maybe 20, 30 uh, guys who are kind of in that.
1: Where's porch time in five years?
0: (laughs) It's triple its size. So it might be a (laughs) hundred people now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Skeptics, the whole skeptic thing um, that's, that's what got me actually. That was, I, I really, uh, lost my belief in the supernatural because of James Randi's uh, a uh, million dollar
0: challenge. Yeah.
1: That was not, uh, what do you call it? Nobody, nobody got it.
0: Yeah. Nobody claimed they, they would run yeah, those.
1: That's what I was looking for. <laughs>
0: They would run those at amazing meetings sometimes in fact if you look up on wikipedia the amazing meeting you can see like the six or eight million dollar challenges they ran at some of those shows like they would go off with a psychic and run the thing and say oh guess what we ran it and they failed oh well you know million dollars is still safe
1: (laughs) you know what's really cool about that is given anybody else doing that challenge they probably could have been fooled right there were there are cases of that happening. And then James Randi comes and says, well, this is how you're going to have to make sure you do the testing procedures. And then they can't do it anymore. Like, it's just crazy right. that a magician is the guy that knows it better than a scientist. Like that's right. Cause why? Because he knows how to fool people. Like exactly. He knows, yep. He
0: knows. <clears throat> you, you met Banachek, right? And, and, you know, Banachek was part of project alpha. Calvin, I, I don't, but, I don't know yeah.
1: much about him. I just know oh. that he was famous enough to be in the circles with James Randy. And so uh, I had a friend that was like, Hey, do you guys want to go to a magic show? And I was like, yes. And so, and then I saw who it was and I was like, this guy's like famous, kind of, I mean, magician famous. <laughs> right. So, yeah.
0: yeah Banachek is a mentalist, but so his affiliation with James Randi was that Randy knew um, a, uh, Stanford. Stanford was running a bunch of psychic tests. Randy knew that they weren't doing these oh, tests well. Oh, that's right. Well. I,
1: I, okay, yes, I yeah. do remember this story. So, so
0: he, he, he got this young magician, Banachek, I think his name Steve Shaw, or no, I'm not sure. But anyway, yeah, so they, and they, he just put him in, you know, he said, hey, here's a psychic. It wasn't from Randy, right? Randy, they, they had no idea Randy was behind all this. But yeah, he got in and just took him apart, right? He got in there, and they thought he was as psychic as the day was long. And so they were going to present him as like proof that they've discovered psychic power. Randy had one rule with Banachek, which is like, if they ever ask you, if you're doing it as a trick, you tell them, yes, I am doing this as a trick, but they'll never ask you. Right. And that's exactly what happened. Banachek did all these tricks, psychic tricks, and they never asked him if he was doing a trick, you know, they just kept like having him. Can you move this with your mind? Oh yeah. You know, he could do it. Cause he knew how to do all the tricks. And yeah. then at the end, once they exposed him, of course, just like, you know, uh, whenever anybody's exposed, they got super angry. <laughs> you know, it's all about Randy and Banachek ruining, you know, the, the, the scientific community by proving that they were wrong. Same thing you saw from, you know, James Lindsay and Peter Boghossian when they exposed all the critical theory stuff. Once people get exposed, boy, they get really angry really fast.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Well, I I guess I do have one more question. So what do you do about the tribal instincts that we all have? Because I definitely see the tribalism of um, the anti-woke too. Like, I, I feel like there are things to be learned from the types of people that would be drawn to that kind of stuff, you know? And so just like I feel like sometimes atheists want to throw out the baby with the bathwater with religion. I feel like anti-woke want to throw out the baby with the bathwater with being empathetic and trying to see things from other people's perspective. You know what I mean? Um, So I don't know. I just, yeah, how what do you do? Do you do anything to keep yourself out of echo chambers so that you can keep your head on straight and you're not too tribal or not sucked into group think in any way?
0: Um, well, I, I think uh, John Stuart Mill's uh, you know advice is, is totally worthwhile. In fact, one of the videos I made is called The Joy of Wrong, which is that I think that um, if you can develop a capacity for taking pleasure in the discovery of being wrong. Like if you can get to a point where you're like, oh, I just found out something wrong. Wow, that's great. You know, like like I, my, my, uh, my viewpoint is improved by this discovery, you know, to, to recognize that I am wrong is to have learned something. Once you get that mindset and it starts to kind of sink in, um, it, it, it helps you to become really humble about how you approach the world because you don't get too dogmatic about anything you believe. And you could be wrong about anything. And to me, that just kind of gives you the, the epistemic kind of curiosity to always be learning, to always be discovering something new and never thinking that you've got it all and that you've cornered the market or, you know, everything. So that's, that's kind of the, I guess the intellectual curiosity that I think I've seen in, in a lot of these other skeptics that it's not about proving that things are, are bad or wrong. It's about discovering truth. And along the way you discover what doesn't work. So anytime you discover something broken, that's just, that's great. I don't know if that if that helps, right? Like, it, it it takes the sting out of discovering when you're wrong when you start to see it as a as a step forward. Mm. Um, and so I think I think that's helpful. Yeah. Uh, see, so you were asking me that wasn't a, a very good answer to your your question directly though, because.
1: Well, what are ways? I guess. I mean, I'm not on board with. um, the social justice stuff at all, but I'm very on board with having friends with people that believe that. I guess that's been my way of trying to, um, yeah, that's, that's been my way of, of, of trying to, my knee-jerk reaction is, this is ridiculous, but my, um, my practice has been that person really believes that and they think that's the right thing. So I'm going to try to maintain that friendship or not think they're a bad, evil person or stupid, or if they knew what I knew, then they would think the way I thought, you know, like maybe different personalities are gravitating toward different types of belief. I don't know, but
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. I I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with kind of the social justice impulse. You know, you want to help other people. You want to, you know, the, the empathy, The, the problem I think uh, if you've watched like, you know, James Lindsay's thing over on quick media is that it uh, it encourages collectivism based around demographic markers that you can't change. Right. So it's like we're going to look at people based on the color of their skin and not on the content of their character. It's a complete 180 of of um, of Martin Luther King. Right. Instead of, you know, I want to uh, one day I, the, the, the I have a dream speech that he said that's really famous. You know, one day I have a dream that one day my little children will be uh, judged not on the color of their skin but on the content of their character right mm-hmm. that was that's kind of the the classical liberal idea that you're looking at the individual individual human rights you don't care about their demographics you don't care about their intersectionality you just care that there's a human there and you're going to give them as much full rights as you can right under the law that's that's what it's all about social justice says no 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 we don't care about your character we care about the color of your skin, or the shape of your genitals, or you know, or what your certain viewpoints are on things—it it puts it into demographics
1: uh, it, rather it, than.
0: It definitely
1: character. does, but then it's also just worried about the marginalized, right? Because uh, the margins are the ones that don't get paid attention to, so they try to. I think that would be how they would frame it, right? Right.
2: Yeah, I,
0: and I think they, that's generally the, the position. It's like, yeah, we need to pay attention to these these demographics. That's usually demographics, right, uh, that, that we need to go and help. We need to go and help these poor people or whatever uh, that are. And, and I think that's great, right? That's that's awesome. The way to do it, though, is through meritocracy, helping them figure out how to lift themselves up through education, through economics, you know, those sorts of things, uh, other means that are different than let's count how many black people are in the room. There's one too few, we need to get the white person out and get a black person in, which is what social justice is, right? They come up with quotas about trying to reframe society around what they think is some sort of more equitable, which is, you know, a, which is a business term. They're gonna try and get all the different things lined up exactly equal um, based around metrics that people don't have control over.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and that's that's the real issue, I think, he, he, because, you know, like you said, you know, white men, right? White men are often said, oh, we have a lot of privilege or, you know, you have this, this whole background, like, but we can't change that we were born white men, right? So why do we suffer original sin, right? Why is there this like, well, you have to pay now for the sins of your ancestors that we imagine that you must have partaken in, right? It's just the same. Yeah,
1: uh, there's there's like definitely a, some flaws over there. Uh, it, it bothers me a lot um, when they, they group (laughs) even when they're using the power dynamics and they're like all concerned that women aren't CEOs and the presidents and stuff like that. And it's like, well, yeah, but neither are most men. Like, I don't, I don't understand how having a woman in as a president is going to make me uh, more fair for me. Like that just doesn't make sense to me. Like I, the feminist stuff, like, um, Judge Judy did a did an interview, I think it was with like Barbara Walters or something, and she was trying to see how feminist Judge Judy was, and she was just like, I just worked really hard, and I got where I'm at, Like, and I didn't yeah. let the boys, you know, I didn't let them tell me what to do. Like, I just did what I wanted, and I just don't think there's a lot of women with that personality, and that's why there's not a lot of women um, CEOs. I don't think it has to do with people like deciding that no woman should be there.
0: Right. And yes,
1: that's been my experience anyway. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, um, like I, uh, I find myself very, uh, aligned with what I would call second wave feminism, which was the feminism, you know, the eighties and nineties, you see women in business suits. And it was like, you know, girl power, get out of our way. We're going to do stuff. It's all about merit, right? Just let us shine in the 80s and 90s. Let women shine, and we will show you—you you know what we can do. And that was awesome. I've always been in favor of like meritocracy, right? If you're yeah. if you're great at your job, if you're good at what you do, you should be hired. But then third wave feminism, which I would consider retribution feminism—the the the the, the thing—well, now we need to we need to make everybody pay for what was done in the past. You know, we're gonna uh, we're gonna correct the flaws of history in the modern times by, by breaking things down and we don't care about merit anymore, we just care about the, the raw numbers that are at the back end. And, and, uh, so that third wave feminism to me is very anti-woman because it's saying, well, women can't, uh, achieve these things on their own. We have to come along with some special government programs to force them into the positions we want them to be in, uh, because they don't, that they're not, they don't have the merit to be there on their own. And it's the same thing with black folk or any, you know, even, you know, whatever demographic. I'm like, I think they do have the merit, you know, I, I don't think we need special programs to, and, and then people end up feeling like uh, they didn't really deserve their position. And sometimes they didn't, you know, Claudine Gay, head of Harvard, clearly not competent,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you know, and then she ends up at the, at the top of Harvard just to fit the checkbox. And that's some pretty dangerous stuff when you're no longer concerned with merit. And now you're just concerned with, Yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: social engineering that's what it is social engineering yeah
1: well at the cost of real engineering
0: (laughs) right right yeah
1: (laughs) like do you want your stuff to work or not (laughs) there's a reason that meritocracy matters and that's because reality matters and reality bats last right
2: yes reality
0: bats last it's always you always collide with it
1: yes well was there anything else that you wanted to chat
0: about where's that um well it's it's interesting to me because you know like the porch time guys some of those of us were a bit more friendly but you you'll notice that we're also on the same side of the argument as like james Lindsay, right mm-hmm. peter bicozian michael Shermer and so we have this um kind of friendly i would say uh i don't know commiseration with guys like jacob hansen and quick media and those guys uh, i don't believe anything that they believe spiritually right but i do agree with their criticisms of of uh, the social justice movement and the collectivist movement and and maybe through our discussion you can kind of see why is that i felt that you know uh the new movement that became new atheism was really this pro science pro skepticism movement that was very positive and i still think it's out there right there's still this like kind of good side but it got sidetracked into this uh social justice movement which um feels to me like it's uh all about politics and marxist ideology and tearing and down things and deconstructing and so i kind of feel like the atheist movement got riven got tore apart uh with half of it or more than half you know 70 percent of it getting social justice and there's just a few of us over there hanging out going wait a minute we still agree with classical liberal ideals and that a lot of the people that started that movement are still there they didn't run off to become social justice guys which i think people kind of forget like like I've got skeptic magazines. I still get it. Here's this is Shermer, right? He's still talking. Look, this is, this is trans matters and gender dysphoria. Is that
1: his newest yeah, one this, or is
0: it... It, Yeah, this is, uh, this is, uh, about a year old now it's 2022 volume 27. So that one, and then here's race, you know, so, so Shermer and uh, these guys, they are still looking at the lens of, of, um, of society through that scientific lens they they haven't they haven't given it up and that's why i loved when uh shirmer went on to lynn's podcast because you know even though the lynn tried to get him a few times to say mormonism is a cult and and Shermer's kind of like mm, yeah I, I don't think so
1: you know <laughs>
2: i don't see it that I way i had
1: mixed feelings <laughs> about that because i do feel like from the outside mormons can look super healthy but then from the inside you are kind of trapped <laughs> you know what i mean like that so i could i could definitely see both sides of that but um do you not feel like politics seems like the new religion? Like, oh, absolutely, it, it's more yeah. important who uh, aligns with you. I think it's easier to get along with someone that disagrees with you religiously than it is to get along to some with someone that um, disagrees politically. And and the politics nowadays seems to be this either social justice or not social justice, right? Like, it's one, like it's not even the the line isn't even like politics really it's this cultural thing this cultural politics cultural war stuff so right. it, that's what i find interesting like I, I think um yeah it's sometimes harder for me to listen to john dolin than john uh, jacob hansen so <laughs> that's <Yeah>. weird
0: <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the substitution hypothesis right this comes up pretty frequently yeah and uh, dawkins is i've heard him talk about it recently uh, in the context, cause people ask, have asked him, right. you know, you were kind of one of the big guys who pushes atheism and now look, it's all running off into social justice land, which Dawkins does not care for either. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and he's like, it's a new religion, right? It, it's a substitution. In fact, he's upset by the idea. I, I heard Peter Bogosian ask him. Well, what if there is a substitution hypothesis that humans are just wired to be religious and so they're just going to go right into a new religion even after you show them the one they're in is faults and Dawkins has said something like, man, I certainly hope that isn't the case because then my life's work is a waste. You know, (laughs) he really does believe that if we can get people thinking in a more scientific mindset that that's it's better for society and humanity in general and he sees religion as this, you know, way that pulls people away from that the epistemic. kind of a a weight that just drags you down yeah
1: so you see the skeptic movement outside of that see I I can see parallels and in any kind of group of people that think along the same lines I can see the patterns I guess even in myself like the anti-woke stuff I think is just as much of a can't quite find the word for it 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 is kind of an ideology but it's um an anti-ideology kind of like ex-mormonism is like an anti-ideology of mormonism you know what i mean Right, right so it it bothers me in similar ways like i'm i don't i don't know i i commensurate with porch time and i hang out with you guys a lot because that's where i am but at the same time i i have to keep myself in check (laughs)
0: Yeah, um,
2: to
0: to me, I think it's always or it's not that, um, you know, it's anti empathy or anything else. It's more about offering or uh, the the um, the notion of individual human rights, right, that it's about the individual and not the collective, not the group. I see that as the main fight, actually, you know, are we trying to focus on keeping the individual at the core or are we trying to make it into groups? And this is also why I think we see that alignment with, um, you know, Jacob Hansen and quick media is because they recognize, uh, the, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Like each soul is important, right? That's how they're trying to view it. So the individual is important within the Christian worldview. Right. And you see that same thing in the classical liberal worldview, the individual is the core unit of society that you want to focus on the smallest minority is the individual. And so that becomes kind of the political framework
1: yeah, I think that's fair. And then they're gonna have like an extra religious overtone that says those individuals have to be doing certain things. they're not going to have the freedom to live they want to li- live the way they want to live and stuff. I think the the problem people run into is when they claim to know too much, right?
0: Oh, yeah, yes, yeah. I, I think uh, to me that the whole point of you know the scientific approach is epistemic humility. You start from a position of I really don't know what's going on here. So I'm going to test, and you know, you're you're throwing your ideas up against reality to see what sticks, and then you know, evaluating uh, based on on what you learn from interrogating reality. That's you know, that's that's kind of the whole scientific endeavor. Is is you're going to be completely honest. You're going to uh, rely upon reality to tell you what's true and what's not through the testing, and and that uh, to me, you have to be super humble because you don't want to influence those outcomes. You want to know what the universe really is. You want to know how it really operates. Um, One of my videos I made uh, over there is uh, the power of pantheism, which is really me taking the the notion of scientific pantheism, uh, which is the idea basically that the cosmos is God and applying that as a potential religious way of looking at the world. Because if you do that, then you're like, well, then the mind of God are all the laws are all the natural laws so that when you're engaged in science, you're really trying to basically find out what the mind of God is if God is the universe right and so mm-hmm. science becomes the method of understanding the universe, it becomes almost like. Uh, you know the this the way that we're always trying to learn about spiritual things Well, science is the way to, to learn about reality as it exists, but it's it's the magic that works. Right. At the end of the day, you have all these other competing. You could see science as another religion, but you come back to science and what it tells you works. You planes fly, you know, computers compute that that's all based on the scientific understanding of the world. So, so to me, from a kind of a religious standpoint, if you're just trying to understand who you are, how you fit into the world, how it all goes together, science is our best tool for, for getting there. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't really find myself with a lot of need personally to like um come up with some additional purpose around that you know like it we're all here on our little pale blue dot but there has to be a bigger meaning and to me it's just like no i'm gonna stare reality in in the face and say nope i don't think there is a bigger meaning this is it we're on our own we're gonna try and figure ourselves out and uh, and and the the world kind of makes more sense when you do that actually because then all the crazy stuff that goes on in the world you go it's just a bunch of people trying to to make sense of things and screwing it up
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, no no grand plan you know yeah
1: yeah no i like that and i've i've also um like when i think of god if i'm going to think of god i also i i think of it as reality that i do that a lot actually i didn't realize there was a name for that but
0: so, scientific pantheism which is it's richard dawkins called it sexed up atheism it's just you, you're you just you're an atheist, but you just say, oh, but the universe is God, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, Stephen Hawking, that sort of metaphorical approach. Yeah. Well,
1: I think you probably could even read some of the, the wisdom that you get out of the Bible, the that's in there and you read it like that and it still makes sense, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very much cafeteria in my philosophy. If it's good, I'll take it from anywhere, whether it's Christianity or whether it's a philosopher I've read or whatever. And i try very hard not to be anybody's disciple you know i don't follow anybody and say this is the way Mm -hmm. nope don't do that instead i feel an obligation to be uh responsible for all my own beliefs and opinions and perspectives and so i don't lean on anybody else instead i'll say if i'm wrong this is the guy to blame you know (laughs) i i screwed up and so i try and correct myself yeah
1: that's that's interesting i like that idea but then i also feel like there's a flaw in that idea because, what if you're crazy and you're just gleaning all the crazy stuff, right? You, you know, do you see what I mean? Like, um, sometimes it's nice to have a group to help correct you, I guess. But if you're always picking all the things you like, then maybe you're only just confirming what you already believe, you know? So, so I yeah. feel like th- there is some correction in group think sometimes. Like, some I think we always go, oh, bad group think, but I think it can correct you too. I think that it's like there's balance and everything <laughs> you, get yeah. you get it. And I think the people that you live close to and that trust that you trust are probably those people, maybe not a prophet. <laughs> so I, there's that, but, but yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. I would, uh, I would agree with that. You're strongly influenced by who's around you. Uh, of course, my, uh, my counterpoint to the, the group think way is like, well, can we boil this down to a claim? And if we can boil it down to a claim, then can we turn it into something we can test? You know, that's where I want to go with whatever anybody wants to. Well, we have a disagreement of opinion. Hmm. Can we make it into a test? Can we test this? And if we can, then I'm willing to say, well, let's do that then. You know, that's that's my approach to the universe is uh, I want to know reality as it really is and not try and filter it or, or, you know, even though there's always filtering going on, but just that's kind of my drive, I guess. To, to stare reality in the face as best you can and then uh, and then get snuffed out when you die anyway. So
1: <laughs> did you ever <laughs> Which follow- doesn't,
0: doesn't bother me.
1: <laughs> yeah. You've you've accepted that, that. Fear of death is not um, a reason to join religion for you. You're okay with yeah. it. <laughs>
0: well you know I was effectively dead for billions and billions of years before I was born, right? And then <laughs> and then you poof into existence and then you go back to that same state.
1: Yeah. Um do you did you ever, or have you followed the street epist street epistemology group? Yeah. Okay, so when,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. When you were talking about um, all the skeptics that have stayed consistent, mm-hmm. I found it interesting because I feel like in the online SE world, that's not quite the case. Um, like, uh, I'm trying to think of his name. He's got probably the most popular SE channel, Anthony Magnabosco. Yeah, yeah I, that I, is
0: I, that does not ring what's what's se stand for
1: street epistemology oh
0: is it street epistemology oh yeah i didn't i didn't know oh didn't so it. there's
1: like this whole oh. online community and peter bogosian wrote that book that kind of stemmed it stemmed from but then a lot of people took off with it and so they'll just go ask people on the street something that they believe and then um yeah. And then they just ask them questions. And so it's just, why do you believe that? And what's your confidence level? And, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, I've seen, I've seen
0: Peter do it. I didn't, I didn't know this other. Yeah, Bosco I, or whatever. yeah.
1: Yeah. Anthony has probably the biggest YouTube channel. He's actually been on Mormon stories too. I met him at oh. thrive in 2021 when they did that, he came out to thrive and talk spoke for a little bit. Um, but but yeah, he's definitely left leaning. And uh most of the S E people are there's a there's a couple that aren't, like uh Peter is one, but like uh Twitter and all that kind of stuff, you see Anthony kind of making fun of of uh, James Lindsay and Peter Bagoshin and stuff and just, you know, trying to make them seem like they're off the rocker because he's yeah. he's the right one. So <laughs> anyways it's just interesting because it uh it, it just surprises me i uh, when i came to the ex-mormon world i was surprised that they were hoodwinked by social justice i was it, it shocked me i was like wait what haven't don't you guys realize what this is <laughs> like i i didn't because if you're if you wake up to mormonism you think you wouldn't like just be sucked right into something else but um yeah i don't know i guess it's common to do that
2: (laughs) yeah
0: that's that's that that substitution hypothesis happening right there that the emotional feelings that you had over there you're trying to figure out you know how can i have those those feelings of purpose and direction and oh social justice will give it to you in a flash right we are going to upend injustices and you can call out anything that you feel empathetic about and you can kind of just get into that whole um, we have a new purpose. It's a new religion. It's, it's going to change the world, uh, through, <laughs> through social justice means, you know, through social engineering. And, yeah. and so it's easy. It's easy for, I think for people who are a little bit religious, looking for a cosmic purpose, something to drive them to just jump right on board. That's what, that's what happened with atheism plus for sure.
2: Uh-huh. Was
0: it, there was a, people who didn't think atheism was sufficient, right? You, we need more where we're, we're not doing our jobs and atheism plus it rubbed it out of it. And right. And a way it well, went, like,
1: yeah. yeah. Matt Dillahunty. Here's another one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely, yeah. And I don't much care for Dillahunty because uh, he's so anti God that it bothers me. You know, <laughs> he just, he's, he's one of those rabid atheists that I think kind of took the social justice angle and turned it into uh, yeah, like a crusade or something where he has to tear down Christianity everywhere. And I didn't feel like that was the case in the early days of skepticism. It wasn't about tearing down God. It was about promoting, uh, you know, science and skeptical way of viewing the world, not tearing people down. And Mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot of attacks on God at at Mm -hmm. first, at least not that I know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. I'll have to make sure I uh, post-production show your pictures because I think it's really cool. You've met. uh, Yeah. Let's do some name dropping here real quick. So you met James Randi. Yep. And do you have a picture with Penn and Teller too?
2: Yeah,
0: yeah I've met Penn and Teller multiple times. Uh, I probably have a picture somewhere, but I didn't send you one. Oh, but, so you've yeah. met
1: all of them. Anybody yeah. I could name you probably have met. Yeah.
0: You know, well, I've never met Peter Boghossian, but I've met, you know, Shermer, Randy, Dawkins, Dennett, um, Harris, although Harris was never at the amazing meeting. I actually saw him at the, I, my younger son and I went out and we saw him at the, uh, launch of his book, Waking Up. Oh. Know, so, yeah. So, uh, huh. uh, yeah, that's cool.
1: that's cool. That's cool that you got to meet those guys. Um, and gal, I,
0: I, I dragged my wife, they still do conferences. It's not the James Randy meeting. Now the SciCon does it committee for scientific investigation. And so in fact, I might, I might still have it. My wife and I dragged dragged her out this last October to one of these uh, meetings in Vegas, another SciCon meeting. It was not nearly as good as the James Randi stuff. It's so much smaller now like, because everything's kind of divided and broken up. Um, but Bill Nye was there, uh, Penn and Teller were there, you know, they're still doing it. The skeptics conferences, they talk a lot about medicine and, and, uh, and creationism, because Jeannie Scott's always talking about all the challenges, you know, within educational system about creationism being pushed in schools. Hmm. But I, so I still, in a way, that's still kind of my community, but I don't really feel completely part of it, but.
2: Hmm.
1: but. That is interesting. I was going to ask you, is your current wife, is she a Nevermo?
0: No, no. She uh, she served a mission to Canada.
1: So. How did you meet? Okay, so you met your current wife? Um, Match. Match.com
0: in, was it 20, better not get it right, 2015? So yeah. you
1: had the similar ex-Mormon background then, or did you, like, corrupt her? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Probably more of the latter. Um, she wasn't, she, she wasn't uh, active at the time. Yeah. Huh now i think she's probably closer to my views than than maybe when we first met but okay. she wasn't she wasn't going to church at the time yeah. huh. had had found it, had found the lds faith not um to serve like a server pragmatic pragmatically right it wasn't was not make her happy
2: hmm. going
0: to church and stuff so she had she'd gone didn't really i don't know if it was a belief thing it was more of an activity thing hmm.
1: oh, that's cool well Okay, for real this time. Thanks. Thanks for chatting. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, have a nice night. So All right. Thanks, Marty. Yep.